Chapter 6 Commencement of Prophethood Rise of the Sun The light of dawn was about to manifest itself upon the eastern horizon, and the sun, which was to illuminate the whole world, was about to rise. The Holy Prophet would regularly retreat to the cave of Hira and would engage himself in the worship of God in a manner of his own. The commencement of true dreams had begun, and the Holy Prophet spent six months in this very state. It was now that the Holy Prophet had reached the age of 40, and his disposition had attained the maturity of prophethood and apostleship. It was among the last ten days of the blessed month of Ramadan and a Monday. As per custom, the Holy Prophet was in the cave of Hira and was engaged in the worship of God when suddenly an unfamiliar being appeared before him. This divine messenger, who was Gabriel, the angel of God, addressed the Holy Prophet and said, Ikra, read. In other words, speak, or convey to the people. The Holy Prophet responded, I cannot read, meaning I cannot bear this responsibility. When the angel heard this reply, he took hold of the Holy Prophet and tightly pressed him against his breast, and after releasing him, said, Ikra, but the response of the Holy Prophet remained the same. The angel took hold of him again and firmly squeezed him, and after releasing him, said, Ikra, but the same hesitation remained. Upon this, the divine messenger took hold of the Holy Prophet a third time and clinched him very tightly, such as by embracing the Holy Prophet. He would leave an impression upon his heart. After having confirmed that the disposition of the Holy Prophet was ready to accept this message, he released the Holy Prophet and said, Read, thou in the name of thy Lord who created, he created man from a clot of blood. I, read, and thy Lord is most honorable and eminent, who taught man by the pen taught man what he knew not. After this dialogue, the angel disappeared, but the Holy Prophet was left in a state of deep anxiety and restlessness, and his heart was panting, for only God knew what this matter was and what was about to take place. In this state, the Holy Prophet hurriedly left the cave of Hira, returned home, and said to Khatija, Cover me with a mantle, cover me with a mantle. When Hazrat Khatija witnessed the state of her beloved husband, she became worried and quickly covered the Holy Prophet with a mantle. When he was somewhat calmed and his anxiety had lessened, the Holy Prophet related the entire event to Hazrat Khatija, and in the end said, I have begun to fear for my life. But Khatija, who was well acquainted with the nature of the Holy Prophet, said, Nay, nay, such can never happen. Rather, glad tidings be to you. By God, Allah shall never disgrace you. You treat your kith and kin with love. You are truthful and assist others in discharging their responsibilities and have gathered within yourself lost virtues. You are hospitable and a helper to others in the way of truth. Then Hazrat Khatija took the Holy Prophet to her cousin, Waraka bin Nafal, who had abandoned polytheism and became a follower of the Christian religion. He was somewhat acquainted with the scriptures of past prophets. He was now old and had lost his eyesight as well. When Hajj Khatija reached there with the Holy Prophet, she said, Brother, would you kindly listen to your nephew? He said, Yes, what is the matter? The Holy Prophet wasallam, related the entire occurrence. When Varaka heard the entire account, he said, This is the same angel who brought revelation to Moses. Oh, would that I had power. Would that I 
remain alive until your people banish you from your homeland? The holy prophet inquired in amazement. Shall my people banish me? Yes, responded Baraka. No prophet came with whom his people did not harbor enmity. And if I remain alive until that time, I shall assist you to the utmost of my capability. However, Baraka could not witness that time because he passed away shortly thereafter. Commencement of Preaching Now that the disposition of the Holy Prophet had settled and calmed, he began to invite people to the unity of God, the Most High, and propagated teachings against polytheism. In the beginning, the Holy Prophet did not preach his mission openly. Rather, he began this process with extreme silence and kept his teachings confined to his close circle of friends. The Message of Islam Although the true place for the elaboration of the doctrinal framework brought by the Holy Prophet shall come ahead, at this point it seemed necessary to include a brief outline of Islam, so that our readers may become aware of the mission of the Holy Prophet and its principal injunctions. Thus it should be known that the name of the religion presented by the Holy Prophet is Islam, which means complete submission to God. And this is the true essence of the teachings brought by the Holy Prophet. The first and foremost principle of the religion is the unity of God, the exalted. In other words, the creator and lord of this world is one God, who in his being and attributes is alone and unassociated. He has existed from this time immemorial and shall remain forever. He is a creator and sustainer of all that is in the earth and in the heaven. For this reason, none save him is worthy of worship, and all deities fashioned by people aside God are fictitious and vain. This is the first and most important principle which the Holy Prophet presented before the people of Mecca. The second principle presented by the Holy Prophet was that Allah the Exalted created this world for a particular purpose and that people should recognize Him and then adorn themselves with His attributes, thus creating a life of eternal advancement. For this purpose, He has divided human life into two parts. One is the life of this world, which is the Darul Amal, and the other is the life of the hereafter, which is the Darul Jaza. And death is the separating boundary between these two lives. The third principle, which the Holy Prophet ﷺ presented, was that Allah the Exalted raises messengers and prophets for the guidance of this world, who acquire divine knowledge from God and thus administer the guidance of man. Such prophets have passed in every nation, country, and era, and among them, them, the Holy Prophet is but one messenger of God. These are the three fundamental laws which were the basis of the initial mission of the Holy Prophet. However, as time passed on, various other principles followed by their derivative institutions of law and detailed elaboration continued to be revealed until the teachings brought by the Holy Prophet attained perfection in the form of the Holy Quran. The Holy Prophet was a chief of the peoples of ancient and modern times, the seal of the Prophet and was the one to bring the last and perfect law. The first Muslim. When the Holy Prophet began the propagation of his mission, the first to believe was Hazrat Khatija, who did not hesitate even for a moment. There is a discord among historians in reference to who the first convert among the men was after Hazrat Khatija. Some name Hazrat Abu Bakr, Abdullah bin Abi 
Kuhafa, while others say Hajat Ali, whose age at that time was only 10 years. Others assert that the freed slave of the Holy Prophet, Hajat Zaid bin Haritha, was the first one to embrace Islam. However, to us, this argument is useless. Hajrat Ali and Zaid bin Haritha were among the housefolk of the Holy Prophet and lived with him as his own children. They were to follow whatever was said by the Holy Prophet as a matter of fact. No verbal declaration was necessary. Thus, their names need not be included. Among the rest, Hazrat Abu Bakr is unanimously accepted as the first and foremost in his acceptance of Islam. Therefore, with regard to Hazrat Abu Bakr, Hassan bin Thabit Ansari, the court poet of the Holy Prophets, Whenever a compassionate reminiscence of any of your noble brethren rise in your heart, remember your brother Abu Bakr as well on account of his virtues, worthy of remembrance. After the Holy Prophet, he was the most righteous and most just of all men and the greatest of those who fulfill their responsibilities. Indeed, it was Abu Bakr who was the second individual with the Holy Prophet in the cave of Thawr, who had effaced himself in the obedience of the Prophet. Whatever task he would undertake, he would make it beautiful, and he was the first of all people to believe in the Messenger. Due to his nobility and abilities, Hazrat Abu Bakr was greatly honored and respected by the Quraysh, and in Islam he acquired a status which no other companion by the Quraysh, and in Islam he acquired a status which no other companion has attained. Hazrat Abu Bakr did not even for a moment doubt the claim of the Holy Prophet, rather accepted him instantaneously. Then he devoted his entire interest and his entire life and wealth in service of the religion brought by the Holy Prophet Among his companions, the Holy Prophet held Abu Bakr most dear to himself. After the demise of the Holy Prophet, he became his first caliph. During the time of his caliphate, he furnished evidence of his unparalleled ability. With regards to Hazrat Abu Bakr, a renowned European Orientalist named Sprenger writes, The faith of Abu Bakr, in my opinion, the, is the greatest guarantee of the sincerity of Muhammad in the beginning of his career. Sir William Muir is also at complete concurrence with this view. Pioneers After Hazrat Khatija, Hazrat Abu Bakr, Hazrat Ali, and Zaid bin Haritha, five more individuals accepted Islam by the preaching of Hazrat Abu Bakr. All of these individuals acquired such eminence and dignity that they are considered the greatest of companions. These are their names. First was Hazrat Usman bin Affan, who belonged to the dynasty of the Banu Umayyah. When he accepted Islam, his age was approximately 30 years. After Hazrat Umar, he became the third caliph of the Holy Prophet. Hazrat Usman was remarkably modest, loyal, soft-hearted, beneficent, and affluent. Therefore, he served Islam financially at many instances. The love of the Holy Prophet for Hazrat Usman can be measured by the fact that he gave him two of his daughters in marriage one after another, due to which he is known as Dun Nurain. Second was Hazrat Abdur Rahman bin Auf, who belonged to the dynasty of the Banu Zuhra, the dynasty of the Holy Prophet's mother. He was a man of extraordinary understanding and experience. It was he who settled the issue of the caliphate of Hazrat Usman. When he accepted Islam, he was approximately 30 years of age. He died in the reign of Usman. 
Third was Sa'ad bin Abi Waqqas, who at that time was in the prime of his youth, that is to say 19 years of age. He was also from the Banu Zuhra and was astonishingly brave and courageous. In the reign of Hazrat Umar, Iraq was conquered at his hands. He died in the time of Amir Muawiyah. The fourth was Zubair bin al-Awam, who was a cousin of the Holy Prophet. He was the son of Safiya bin Abdul Matlib and later became the son-in-law of Hajjat Abu Bakr. He belonged to the Banu Asid and when he accepted Islam, he was only 15 years old. At the occasion of the Battle of the Ditch, the Holy Prophet endowed him the title of Hawari due to an exceptional service performed by him. He was martyred in the reign of Hazrat Ali during the Battle of the Camel. The fifth was Talha bin Abdullah, who was from the tribe of Hazrat Abu Bakr and Banu Daim. During that time, he was at the prime of his youth. Talha was also amongst the distinctive devotees of Islam. He was martyred in the reign of Hazrat Ali during the Battle of the Camel. All of these companions are amongst the Ashra Mubashara. In other words, they are included amongst those ten companions who were given glad tidings of entrance into paradise from the blessed tongue of the Holy Prophet himself and were regarded with his utmost intimate companions and advisors. After these people, others who believe in the Holy Prophet in the very beginning were from the Quraysh as well as from other tribes. The names of some of these are as follows. Abu Ubaidah bin Abdullah bin al-Jara, who conquered Syria in the time of Hajjat Umar. He was a man of exceedingly righteous and ascetic disposition and was bestowed the title of Aminul Mila by the Holy Prophet. Abu Ubaidah was from the tribe of Banu Khalaj of the Quraysh, who were, at the times, referred to as Fahiri, being attributed to Fir bin Malik. The status and value of Hajrat Abu Ubaidah in the eyes of Hajrat Aisha was so great that she would say, if Abu Ubaidah had been alive at the death of Hajrat Umar, he would have been caliph. Hajrat Abu Bakr also held Abu Ubaidah in high regard. Thus, at the demise of the Holy Prophet, Hajrat Abu Ubaidah was also among those who Hajrat Abu Bakr held worthy of caliphate. Hajrat Abu Ubaidah is also among the Ashara Mubashara. He was martyred in the reign of Hajrat Umar due to a plague epidemic. Then was Ubaidah bin al-Harith, who was from the Banu Mutlib and was among the near relatives of the Holy Prophet. Abu Salama bin Abdul Asid was the foster brother of the Holy Prophet and belonged to the Banu Makhzum. After his death, the Holy Prophet was married to his widow, Umi Salama. There was Abu Hudayfa bin Utba, who was from the Banu Umayyah. His father, Utbah bin Rabia, was among the chieftains of the Quraysh. Abu Hudayfa was martyred in the Battle of Yamama, which was fought against Musaylima Kathkab during the Caliphate of Hazrat Abu Bakr. There was Sayyid bin Zaid of the Banu Adi, who was the brother-in-law of Hajjat Umar. He was the son of Zaid bin Amr bin Nofal, who had abandoned polytheism even in the era of the Jahiliyyah. Saad is also among the Ashara Mubashara. There was Usman bin Mazun, who was from the Banu Jama. He was a man of extremely ascetic disposition. He had abandoned drinking even the, in the era of the Jahaliyyah and wished to become a recluse after accepting Islam. 
but the Holy Prophet did not permit this saying. Religious reclusion is not permitted in Islam. Then Arkham bin Abi Arkham, whose home was situated at the foot of Mount Safa, and the Holy Prophet later made that house his religious headquarters. Arkham was from the Banu Makzum. Then came Abdullah bin Jash and Ubaidullah bin Jash. Both of them were the paternal cousins of the Holy Prophet, but did not belong to the Quraysh. Zainab bin Jash, who later came into the matrimonial tie of the Holy Prophet, was their sister. Abdullah bin Jash was among those who had abandoned idol worship even in the era of the Jahiliyyah. At the advent of Islam, he became Muslim, but when he migrated to Abyssinia, abandoned Islam for some reason and became a Christian. His widow, Ummi Habiba, was the daughter of a renowned chieftain of the Quraysh, Abu Sufyan, later came into matrimony with the Holy Prophet. In addition to these people was Abdullah bin Masud, who was not from the Quraysh, but belonged to the Hodail tribe. Abdullah was a very poor man and would pasture the goats of Uqba bin Abi a chieftain of the Quraysh. After he had accepted Islam, he came into the service of the Holy Prophet, and his blessed company ultimately transformed him into a very learned scholar. The foundation of Hanafi jurisprudence is primarily based on his narrations and religious interpretations. Then was Bilal bin Rabbah, the Abyssinian slave of Umayyah bin Khalaf. After he migrated, the duty of calling Azan in Medina was entrusted to him. However, after the demise of the Holy Prophet, he stopped calling the Azan, but in the Caliphate of Hajjad Umar, when Syria was conquered upon the persistence of Hajjad Umar, he called the Azan. This reminded everyone of the Holy Prophet's time, and Hajjad Umar and companions who were present at the time, as well as himself, wept bitterly. Hazrat Umar loved Bilal to the extent that when he died, Hazrat Umar said, This day a chieftain of the Muslims has passed away. These were the words of the king of that time for a poor Abyssinian slave. Then was Amr bin Fuhaira, whom Hazrat Abu Bakr freed from slavery and employed as an attendant. Then there was Kabab bin al-Arat, who was a freed slave and in those days worked in Medina as a blacksmith. Then there was Abu Dar, who belonged to the Gifar tribe. When he heard of the Holy Prophet's claim, he sent his brother to Makkah for the purpose of investigation. Thus his brother came to Makkah and briefed Abu Dar after his return. But he was not satisfied. For this reason, he later came to Makkah himself and became Muslim after meeting the Holy Prophet. An elaborate account of his acceptance of Islam is written in Bukhari and is quite interesting. Abu Dar was very devout and a man of ascetic disposition. He believed that the collection of wealth is worthy of condemnation under all circumstances. At times, he would fall into a dispute with other companions over this belief. These are some of the people who accepted Islam in its first three or four years. Among them, the wives and children of those who are married generally accepted Islam as well. Thus, in addition to Hazrat Khatija, historians have particularly named Asma bint Abi Bakr and Fatima bint Khatab, the wife of Saad bin Zaid, among the early Muslim women. In addition to these, Ummi Fazl, the wife of Abbas bin Abdul Mutlib, was also among the pioneer Muslims, but it is strange that until this time, Abbas himself had not accepted Islam. 
In any case, the outcome of the three to four year laborious endeavor of the Holy Prophet was merely these few souls. However, among these ancient pioneers, with the exception of Hajjat Abu Bakr, there were none who possessed particular influence and honor among the Quraysh. Some were slaves, and most of the others were poor and weak. Some, however, were related to upper class families of the Quraysh, but even among them, most were youngsters and thus were not in a position to cast an influence in their tribes. Others who were aged had no influence due to their poverty or other reasons. For this reason, it was a common thought among the Quraysh that only young and weak people had accepted Muhammad Therefore, after many years, when Heraclius, the king of Rome, inquired of Abu Sufyan, the chief of Mecca, does the nobility accept Muhammad or the weak lower class? Abu Sufyan responded, The weak and lower class accept him. Upon which Heraclius answered, and beautifully indeed, In the beginning, it is a lower class who accept the messengers of Allah. Method of taking bath by the Holy Prophet At this instance, it shall not be inappropriate to mention that when an individual would come to accept Islam, the method of the Holy Prophet was that he would take that person's hand into his own and would seek a declaration in predetermined words and would take oath that he would obey every maruf decision made by the Holy Prophet hereafter. In the declaration of Islam, after clear mention of principal elements, an oath would be taken. For example, that I shall believe in God as one and without partner, I shall not indulge in polytheism and shall abstain from evil deeds such as stealing, adultery, murder, and lying, etc., etc. Whilst taking bath from women, the Holy Prophet would seek the same declaration, but would not take the hands of women into his own. Rather, a verbal oath of allegiance would suffice. Afterwards, when injunctions relevant to jihad by the sword were revealed, the Holy Prophet ﷺ made an addition to the words of bath with relevance to jihad. The bath of women, however, remained unaltered until the end. Aside from the bath, it was a custom of the Holy Prophet not to shake hands with women who were beyond their prohibited degrees. When the teachings of Barda were revealed, the disclosure of the beauty of men and women to one another, whether by sight or touch, was declared forbidden by religious law anyway. Initial Concealment and the Conduct of the Quraysh In the beginning, the Holy Prophet ﷺ primarily kept his preaching secret for approximately three years. As such, in this era, there was no specific center where the Muslims could gather. Rather, the Holy Prophet would meet seekers of truth who would come as a result of his own preaching endeavors and other Muslims in his own home or in the outskirts of town. This secrecy was maintained to the extent that, at times, even Muslims themselves remained unaware of the Islam of one another. The reason being that in this era, Muslims generally concealed their religion and news would rarely reach the chieftains of the Quraysh. However, if news did in fact reach them, in those days, generally Muslims were not vehemently opposed and their opposition was in fact limited to mockery alone. This is because they thought of this entire endeavor as child's play. If, on the other hand, someone did oppose severely, this opposition was his own personal action, and there was no unified resistance waged against the Muslims by the Quraysh. Pillars of Islam in the Early Era 
The fundamentals of Islam have been mentioned above. In other words, during this early era, when the revelation of Islamic law was in its preliminary stages among the pillars of Islam, real emphasis was put on the existence and unity of Allah. After this was belief in the messengers of God, life after death, and the doctrine of recompense after death. Although these principles are so basic, that if one contemplates everything is encompassed within them. Yet the manner in which these and other principal elements were later collectively declared the pillars of Islam. This was not the case in the beginning. Same was the case with physical worship. Rather, among the pillars of physical worship, none had formerly established amongst the currently existent pillars of Salat, fasting, Hajj, and Zakat, etc. Albeit, it is evident from a hadith and as much that in early stages Gabriel taught the Holy Prophet the method in which to pray and perform wudu. The formal observance, however, of the five daily prayers came into practice much later and fasting, etc. were declared obligatory even later. In the beginning, there was only Salat and even that was of supererogatory nature. Muslims would gather in groups of two to four and offer their prayers either in their homes or in the valleys near Makkah as they found the opportunity to do so in the form of a common worship. Hence, with reference to this early era, historians write that one time the Holy Prophet and Hazrat Ali were offering their Salat in the valley of Makkah when suddenly Abu Talib passed by. Until then, Abu Talib was completely unaware of Islam. Thus, he stood there and observed this spectacle with great amazement. When the Holy Prophet completed his Salat, he asked, What religion is this, which you have adopted? The Holy Prophet responded, Uncle, this is the religion of God and of Abraham. Then the Holy Prophet briefly presented an invitation to Islam before Abu Talib, but he brushed it off saying, I cannot forsake the religion of my ancestors. But with that, he also addressed his son Hazrat Ali and said, My son undoubtedly do support Muhammad, for I trust that he shall shall call you towards nothing but goodness. Another incident, perhaps close to this era, is that Saad bin Abi Waqas and a handful of Muslims were offering their salat in a valley, when suddenly a few idolaters appeared and reproached them for their new form of worship. This led to a mutual altercation. Commencement of Public Preaching a state of silent and concealed preaching was still in practice, and approximately three years had passed since the prophetic commission of the Holy Prophet The fourth year had begun when divine command was revealed that, O Prophet, declare openly that with which thou art commanded. Shortly thereafter, the following verse was revealed, And warn thy nearest kinsmen. When these injunctions were revealed, the Holy Prophet stood upon Mount Safa and called out to every tribe of the Quraysh by name in a resonating voice. When all had gathered, the Holy Prophet said, O Quraysh, if I inform you that behind this hillock is a large army ready to wage an assault upon you, will you believe me? Apparently this seemed unlikely, yet everyone responded saying, Yes, most definitely we shall believe you, for we have always found you truthful in speech. The Prophet responded, Hearken then, I inform you that the army of Allah's chastisement approaches. Believe in God that you may be saved. When the Quraysh heard these words, they burst into laughter, and Abu Lahab, the paternal uncle of the Holy Prophet, addressed him saying, 
Muhammad, woe unto you! Have you gathered us for this? Then everyone dispersed. Mock invitation to kinsmen. During these days, the Holy Prophet ﷺ instructed Hazrat Ali to make arrangements for a feast and invite the Banu Abdul Mutlib so that the message of truth be delivered to them. Hence, Hazrat Ali made arrangements for a feast and the Holy Prophet invited all of his immediate relatives who at that time more or less amounted to 40 people. When they finished their meal, the Holy Prophet attempted to make an address, but the wretched Abu Lahab said something which caused all the people to disperse. Upon this, the Holy Prophet wasallam said to Hazrat Ali, We have lost this opportunity, but arrange for another feast. Thus the Holy Prophet gathered his relatives once more. This time the Prophet addressed them saying, Look here, I have brought unto you the like of which has been brought to no other tribe by any man. I call you to God. If you pay heed to my call, you shall become the inheritors of all the bounties of religion in this world. Now tell me, which of you shall be my helpers in this cause? Complete silence had overtaken the gathering when suddenly a feeble 13-year-old boy stood up with tears in his eyes and said, Although I am among the weakest and youngest of all, I shall support you. This was the voice of Hazrat Ali. When the Holy Prophet heard these words of Hazrat Ali, he turned to his relatives advised, If you but knew, listen to the voice of this child and believe. When the participants saw this spectacle, instead of taking a lesson from it, they burst into laughter. And Abu Lahab stared at his elder brother Abu Talib. Lo, Muhammad orders you to follow your son. Then these people left mocking at the weakness of Islam and the Holy Prophet Dari Arkam, the first center of the propagation of Islam. Perhaps during these days, the Holy Prophet thought that a center for the propagation of Islam be established in Mecca, where Muslims could gather without any hindrance to offer their prayers, and where the propagation of Islam could formally yet quietly take place with peace and calm. For this purpose, a location was required which could serve as a headquarters. Thus, the Holy Prophet selected the house of a new Muslim named Arkham bin Abi Arkham which was situated at the foot of Mount Safa. Thereafter, the Muslims would gather here, and it is here that they would offer their salat. It is here that the seekers of truth would come and where the Holy Prophet would preach the religion of Islam to them. It is for this reason that this house has found reverence in the history of Islam and is renowned by the name Darul Islam. The Holy Prophet ﷺ worked in the Dari Arkham for approximately three years. In other words, the Prophet made it his headquarters in the fourth year of his prophethood and worked in it until the end of his sixth year. Historians write that the last person to accept Islam in the Dari Arkham was Hazrat Umar, the acceptance of whom strengthened the Muslims to the extent that they left the Dari Arkham and began to preach openly. Those who accepted Islam in Dari Arkham are included amongst the pioneers. Among these, the most renowned are Musa bin Umar, who was from the Banu Abdi Dar. He was very handsome and striking and was held very dear among his family. This is the same noble young man who was sent as a missionary to Yathra prior to the migration and through whom Islam spread in Medina. Then there was Zad bin Al-Khattab, who was the elder brother of 
Hazrat Umar. He was martyred in the Battle of Yamama after the death of the Holy Prophet Hazrat Umar was very grieved by his demise. Hence, during the reign of his caliphate, when some person recited an elegy before him in remembrance of his brother, he said, If I could write such verses, I would have also written an elegy in remembrance of my brother. That person responded, O oh, Amir al-Mu'mineen, the blessed death endowed to your brother is such as if my brother had received the like of it. I would never lament or write an elegy for him. The disposition of Hazrat Umar was very sagacious. He responded, By God, the way you have consoled me with this statement, none has done the like of it. After that, he never expressed grief for his brother's demise in this way. Another one to believe in this era was Abdullah bin Umi Maktoum, who was blind and was among the relatives of Hazrat Khatija. There is an interesting narration with regards to him that once when the Holy Prophet was fervently preaching to an honored chieftain named Walid bin Mughira bin Umi Maktoum, quickly came to the Holy Prophet and wished to pose an inquiry pertinent to a religious matter. But in his eagerness, he did not notice the gathering and the task in which the Holy Prophet was occupied and ignored the etiquette suitable to a gathering of the Holy Prophet in such circumstances. With respect to the situation at hand, the Holy Prophet disliked his interruption and his face showed signs of displeasure. It was a nobility of his character that the Holy Prophet did not say anything to him. Rather, he turned away from him and continued his discourse with Walid. Abdullah bin Umi Maktoum remained oblivious to his mistake, but he was saddened by this inattention and he thought that perhaps the Holy Prophet preferred Walid over his modest self on account of his greater status. This speculation, however, was completely false and baseless, because at the time, the question was not of rich or poor, rather the Holy Prophet was engaged in preaching to someone who received very little opportunity to listen to such words, and bin Umi Maktoum, on the other hand, had the luxury of his company more often. For this reason, the Holy Prophet did not desire giving up such an opportunity and disliked Umi Maktoum's interruption, which in fact was against the etiquette of the gathering as well. Nonetheless, the level of this noble character of the Holy Prophet was such as when he was informed of Umi Maktoum's heartfelt sadness and a Quranic revelation was also revealed in regards to it. The Holy Prophet greatly consoled him and spread his blessed mantle and sat him upon it as per the custom of the Arabs. Then among those who became Muslim in that era was Jafar bin Abi Talib, who was the biological brother of Hazrat Ali and was a close relative of the Holy Prophet. With regards to Hazrat Jafar, historians write that he greatly resembled the Holy Prophet in his physical attributes and character. Then there was Amar bin Yasser, who was from the Mudhaj tribe and lived in Mecca with his father Yasser and mother Sumaya. Then there was Suhaib bin Sinan, who was generally known as Suhaib the Roman. However, in actuality, he was not Roman. Rather, when his father was sent by the sovereignty of Iran as an employee, he was captured by the Romans and made a slave. For some time, he remained among them as a slave, after which he was finally purchased by Abdullah bin 
bin Jadan Qureshi, a Meccan chieftain, and set free. When Suhaib became Muslim, the Holy Prophet said, as a positive presage, This is our first Roman fruit. Suhaib was such a devotee to the company of the Holy Prophet that after the Prophet had migrated to Medina, he set out to migrate to Medina. The Quraysh stopped him and said, You came into us as a poor slave. Now you have become rich in our midst. Thus we shall not permit you to go. He responded, Take the entirety of my wealth, but let me go. The Quraysh permitted him to leave on this condition. When the Holy Prophet ﷺ was informed of this, in great happiness he said, Suhaib has made a very beneficial trade indeed. When Hazrat Umar was fatally wounded during his caliphate, he appointed Suhaib in his place as the Imam al-Salat. Therefore, it was Suhaib who led the funeral prayer of Hazrat Umar. Perhaps during and around the same era, Abu Musa Ashari became Muslim as well. Abu Musa lived in Yemen and was astonishingly melodious. So much so that in one instance, the Holy Prophet said, Abu Musa has received a portion of David's melody. This is the same Abu Musa who was appointed an arbitrator. Opposition of the Quraysh and its causes. As mentioned above, prior to the era of entering the Dari Arkham, public preaching had begun. The name of Islam began to take on popularity in the streets of Mecca. Until now, the Quraysh were quiet to some extent, but now even they began to worry that perhaps this disease would further spread and the plant of Islam might take on firm root in Meccan soil. For this reason, they turned their attention to Islam and attempted to halt its propagation forcefully. What were the causes? of this opposition. We need not write too much in this regard, for all divine religions established in the world face opposition. The reason being that such religions unquestionably possess attributes as are unknown to the people of that time. Actually, these attributes are taken by the existing society as a definite bereavement to their current habits, beliefs, and ideologies. In actuality, the rise of prophets occurs in such years when the people of the world have strayed from the path upon which Allah the Exalted wishes that they thread, and they consider their current false path to be the correct one. As such, whenever a new prophet comes and invites people to the right path, the world rejects with his invitations thinking it's fictitious and prepares to oppose it. Hence, Allah the Exalted states in the Holy Quran, Alas, for mankind, there comes not a messenger to them, but they mock at him. Then, the strange thing is that it is usually those who are considered of high status that tend to be the most fervent in opposition. Thus Allah the Exalted says, The custom of Allah is that in every town it is the great ones who break ties with Allah in opposition of the Messenger and become the instigators of disorder and corruption. Thus when Abraham was sent, the distinguished people of his nation took hold of him and cast him into a fire. When Moses came, he was also made to confront violence and contention from the most powerful of his people. When the Messiah's turn came, the scholars of his nation and Pharisees put him on the cross. When Christian was sent to India, his nation stood up to annihilate him. Would then the chief of the prophets be exempt from this custom? Rather, his opposition was to be proportionally equivalent to the magnitude of his mission. Since the holy prophet was raised in an era when darkness was especially prevalent and it was inevitable that upon the advent of light, the armies of darkness would contend their utmost. So it happened as such.
much in comparison to all of the prophets of the past, the holy prophet was faced with the most opposition. The primary causes as they appear for this opposition are as follows. Number one, the people of the Quraysh were idolaters of the highest degree. The honor and love of idols had become so impressed in their hearts that to hear even a word against them was unbearable. These wrongdoers had placed hundreds of idols in the Kaaba, which was built for the worship of Allah, the Exalted One. They would turn to these idols for all of their needs. When Islam came, its principal foundation was a unity of God. Its clear commandment was not to bow one's head before any human, tree, rock, or star, etc. Rather, prostrate thyselves before that being alone who hath created them. Furthermore, the words used to describe the idols of the Quraysh in the Holy Quran appeared to the Quraysh as very insulting, for they were declared the fuel of hell. For example, it is mentioned, O ye people, surely you and your idols which you worship are the fuel of hell. These statements had blazed a fire among the Quraysh and they stood up united to obliterate Islam. Number two, with the exception of idolatry, the customs and morals of the Arabs had been mentioned in the beginning of this book. The arena of adultery, alcohol, gambling, pillaging, murder, and unlawful gains were ever ablaze. Islam, on the other hand, condemned such things. As such, by accepting Islam, they were compelled to adopt the new way of life, and the Quraysh were not prepared for this in the least. Similar was the case with ritualism, which had as if become part of the religion. Islam, on the other hand, prohibited and crushed all vile, immoral, and irreligious rituals. Number three, to honor the traditions of their ancestors and follow them, whether right or wrong was a part of the Arab religion. For this reason they insisted, Nay, we will follow that wherein we found our fathers. However, Islam declared God-given intellect an arbitrator between truth and falsehood. And with regards to their idolatrous ancestors, it is clearly said, Shall they then follow their fathers even if they had no sense at all and no guidance? Number four, the Quraysh were a very arrogant people. These people thought of no one like unto themselves. As far as slaves were concerned, they especially desired to debase them and keep them downtrodden. Quite the contrary, with respect to rights, Islam dispelled all such distinctions, developed a universal brotherhood, and brought both master and slave in the same robe before God the Almighty. For the chieftains of the Quraysh, this was no less than a cup of death. Number five. Many people of influence and wealth existed among the Quraysh. Despite the fact that the Holy Prophet belonged to a noble dynasty, he possessed neither. In other words, due to his reclusive disposition, he was not among the chieftains of the Quraysh, nor was he distinct in terms of his money and wealth. In this case, to act in obedience to the Holy Prophet for the leaders of the Quraysh was a sacrifice for such magnitude as they were not at all ready to make. It is for this reason that they would say, Why has not this Quran been sent down to some great man of Makkah or Taif? Number 6. 
In addition to these causes, another reason was that between the various tribes of the Quraysh, there existed extreme hostility and enmity. As such, the remaining tribes were in no way prepared to accept the superiority of the tribe of the Holy Prophet over their own. The tribes of the Banu Umayyah and Banu Makhzum particularly harbored great enmity against the Banu Hashim. For this reason, these two tribes were most fervent in their opposition to Islam.